E. Greer uses the analogy of a balloon to speak of our relationship with Christ. You see, there are two ways to keep a balloon afloat. One way is to fill the balloon with your own breath. And then the only way then to keep the balloon in the air is to continually smack it upwards. That's how religion keeps you motivated. It repeatedly hits you. Stop doing that. Get busy doing this. Deal with this issue. Smack, smack, smack. This is many people's view, by the way, of, uh, of the role of the pastor. You come on Sunday so I can smack you about something. Be more generous. So you go out for a week and you say, I need to be more generous. You come back the next week, smack again. Go out and do some missions. So you sign up for a short-term mission strip. And every week, you keep coming back. And every week, I smack you back into spiritual orbit. And preachers become professional smackers. No wonder people don't like being around preachers. Now, we all need an urging to live more Christ-like. There, there is a place for this, and, and, and that is my role I am to play in your life. And, and trust me when I say it smacks me as well. But you know, there's another way to keep balloon afloat. Fill it with helium. Then it floats on its own. No smacking required. We could liken this to the, to the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so when you leave here on Sunday morning filled with Him and His power, you're better able to stay afloat. To be filled with His power is much better way than trying to stay afloat by your own hot air, by your own effort, in your own strength. And just because you felt the hand of the preacher hitting you back up into spiritual air. See, one is short-lived and one is more lasting. The former is what you get on your own power. The latter is what you get when filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this morning's passage takes us to a time when the disciples felt the rather painful results of self-effort and filling their balloons with their own hot air. This morning, we come face to face with what we can expect when we try to do things in our own power, our own competencies, drawing upon even our own past experiences of success rather than the power of God. We've been following Jesus' travels through the Gospel of Mark the Gospel of Mark answers the primary question, of course, of who is Jesus? But it also answers the question, what does a follower of Jesus look like? And so throughout this fast-paced, hard-hitting book, we have observed Jesus' training of his disciples, and it's training for all of his followers. 
And this scene here in Mark 9 is a case in point of much-needed hands-on training for Jesus' disciples. You see, for two-plus years, the disciples had walked with Jesus 24-7. They observed his reactions. They heard what he taught straight from his lips. When he cast out demons, they were there. When he healed the sick, they saw it with their own eyes. There was never a time when they didn't have the power because his power was always present with them. We might say they lived by sight. But there would be a day when they would have to live by faith. Jesus would not be physically present. And that day was coming. And how would they then tap into his power when he was not there? How well would they make it when he was not right there with them? That's what we see today. The story here that Karen just read for us is a day in the life of the disciples, and it it brings us up close to the real world where life is lived. In context... This scene here follows immediately the transfiguration of Christ, where Jesus is on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And Jesus and the three disciples come down from this glorious, unbelievable time on the mountain to a crisis taking place with the other nine disciples. That's quite a roller coaster ride for the disciples up transfiguration, down to the real trenches of ministry, up, down. There are no more diametrically opposed events than what we see here this morning. It moves abruptly from the mountaintop to the valley, a foretaste of glory to reality, if you will. And no sooner are the three disciples down from their spiritual retreat, from their mountaintop experience, they must deal with the painful realities of human failure. Follow along as I read Mark chapter 9. We'll read it again, verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and, greet, and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. What are you arguing with them about? Now, it is what comes next that serves our, as, as our focus this morning. It, it's really boiled down to just four words at the end of verse 18. But I want to read verse 17 and 18 so we get the flow and the, and the full effect of these four words. Verse 17. A man in the crowd answered. Now, now Jesus just asked the question to the disciples and the teachers of the law. What are you arguing about? Disciples, they didn't say anything. Teachers of the law, they didn't say anything. A man in the crowd answered, verse 17, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Verse 18. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but... They could not. But they could not. But they could 
not? Why not? Why can it be said, but they could not? That's where we're going with this this morning. There are four main characters in this story. A boy, a dad, Jesus, and the disciples. For the sake of an outline, we see these four headings. The condition of the boy, the expectation of the dad, the reaction of Jesus, and the humiliation of the disciples. Condition of the boy, expectation of the dad, the reaction of Jesus, humiliation of the disciples. First of all, the condition of the boy. Now, the condition of the boy here mirrors what we know today as epilepsy. And by this, I am not suggesting in the least that epilepsy today is a form of demonic possession. not saying that. And whether or not this boy's condition was of a seizure common to epilepsy and only made worse by this demon possession, we can't dismiss the demonic influence here. That is where Mark clearly places the emphasis. There was a demon in this boy that needed to be cast out. That was his condition. Now, now there are typically two extremes around this matter of demonic activity. I can boil it down to this. Some conclude it's everywhere, and others conclude it's nowhere. Both extremes are wrong. We should not seek to find a demon in every situation, nor should we dismiss demonic activity entirely. But we don't have to guess who is directly behind all of this, for Mark clearly tells us that this evil spirit, that this is an evil spirit, and that this isn't a healing that will take place, but a rebuking and driving out of a demon. The evil one seeks to distort and destroy the image of God in his image bearers. And certainly, he has had his way in this young life. Now, what I find rather interesting is that while this boy is suffering from a spiritual conditions, <laughs> spiritual condition, the, the disciples are involved in an argument with the teachers of the law. While the boy suffers, the disciples are disputing. Now, I don't want to make too much out of this, but it caused me to wonder, is it any different today? While the lost suffer, we are disputing. While Satan has his way in lives, we find ourselves standing around discussing what went wrong. And something did indeed go wrong. The boy is brought to the nine disciples for deliverance. The boy is brought to the nine disciples to deliver and cast out this demon. But they could not. Disciples were on their own. And as it turns out, things didn't go so well. And so we have the condition of the boy. Secondly, we have the expectation of the dad. The expectation of the dad. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Proverbs 13, 12 tells us. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Now, is there a parent in this room who can't relate to the pain in the heart of this dad who had hoped the disciples could do something for his son, but they could not? When you hope and it comes up short, 
What happens next? What happens next? Quite often, we quit hoping. I'm not going to get my hopes up anymore. As has been said, he who has never hoped can never despair. And so, so rather than feel the pain of despair, we figure, it would be better if we just never hoped again. We, we'll never get our expectations up because unmet expectations lead to disappointment. And we don't like to feel disappointment, so I'm not going to hope again. And to me, this explains the words of the dad to Jesus in verse 22. Look what he says. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. Get this now. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Folks, these are words of an honest, disillusioned man who can't take another disappointment. He has watched this scene many times over the years. Since a young age, his son, and in Luke's account of this, by the way, we're told this is his only son. His son, he's seen it over and over again. He he falls to the ground. He rolls around. He foams at the mouth. He has to watch his son, his only son, almost be killed by this massive seizure-like torture. It's gotten so bad at times, the dad has to pull him out of the fire so it wouldn't kill him and save him from drowning. Can you imagine? Moms, dads, can you imagine? What would you do in such desperation? With my mind's eye, I can imagine this father had tried everything because in today's world, that's what we would do. He went to every doctor. He went to every specialist. He followed the advice of every well-intentioned person out there who said to him, have you tried this? Have you tried that? People do that all the time. You know, I had that issue once too. Have you tried this? That might help. Well-intentioned. I get it. Oh, he tried every quack cure and every home remedy. He he tried every drug and every over-the-counter organic medicine. He went to every miracle worker. He read every book on this type of condition. I mean, he even Googled it, ransacked the Internet, called into the local Christian radio stations, sent money to the TV evangelists. I mean, you get my points. He tried everything, perhaps, and it all added up to nothing. You talk about hope deferred a hundred times over. There's no telling what a parent would do in such a desperate situation. He then gets word that Jesus' disciples are in town. Rumor has it that Jesus and the disciples have had proven success in this sort of thing. And and so his friends encourage him to give it a shot. No harm, they say. He thinks, uh, been there, done that. I can't take another letdown. I can't handle another disappointment. But just to keep his friends quiet, he agrees to to check out this Jesus buzz that is in the air. And he shows up, and Jesus isn't even around. He's on a spiritual retreat. Here we go again. Let's assume that what Jesus can do, his disciples can do also. And they have. Back in Mark chapter 6, verse 13. It says of these disciples that they drove out many demons. The expectation then of the dad is that when he brought his son to the disciples, 
They would be able to drive out this demon. They had done it before. He brings them to the son, to the disciples, but they could not. I mean, they tried to cast it out. But the boy still foams at the mouth. He still can't hear. He still is mute. He's thrown into convulsions. And once again, the father's expectations are smashed. And his fears are realized. Oh, how this father hurt. We can imagine the pain of this dad. Because how often do we rise and fall on our own kids? They're ups and they're downs. They're doing well. We're doing well. They're not doing so well. We're not doing well. Up, down, up, down. For this dad, it was one more failure in a long, miserable string of them in desperate times when we tried one thing after another and see no results. We get doubtful if there's ever any hope for change. I mean, where do we go? With our expectations. Listen to Johnny Erickson taught his perspective. You know, Johnny, paraplegic due to a diving accident over 40 years ago. And she had this to say about praying for over 40 years for healing. She says, a no answer has purged sin from my life. Strengthened my commitment to him. Forced me to depend on grace, bound me with other believers, produced discernment, fostered sensitivity, disciplined my mind. Now get this. She says, a paraplegic for over 40 years. She says this, and it widened my world beyond what I would have ever dreamed had I never had that accident in 1967. Wow. She goes on to say, being in this wheelchair has meant knowing him better. Feeling his pleasure every day. And if that doesn't qualify as a miracle in your book, then may I say it in all kindness, I prefer my book to yours. <laughs> Will you surrender your expectations to your God? Can you give them to, them, to him? We see the reaction of Jesus next. Where we see both frustration and compassion on the part of Jesus here. In verse 19... Look at me at verse 19, this frustration, I would say exasperation, comes out as Jesus says here, Oh, it's a lament, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? How long, how long? These are words used by the psalmist to express great emotion. This is a holy exasperation, by the way. I mean, Jesus had been with these disciples, and he's given them every reason to trust him. Humanly speaking, a lack of trust is difficult to handle, is it not? I mean, if you have lived in such a way worthy of trust, and for others to believe in you and they don't, it's tough to swallow. His own followers struggled here to trust him. These are harsh words from our Savior. You see, but they could not was not due to effort on their part, but unbelief. Why do they fail here? What went wrong? They didn't believe. Right on the heels of this holy frustration, the second reaction, Jesus' compassion. He says at the end of verse 19, I love these words, Jesus says, bring the boy to me. 
That's Jesus' call to every parent in this room. Bring your daughter to me. Bring your son to me. Bring your grandchild to me. These words had to have sent a chill up the spine of this dad. Jesus asked the dad in verse 21, notice this, he says, how long the boy has been like this. Now it seems rather odd that Jesus would be asking that. It isn't as if Jesus lacks some, some information. It, it, does it really matter how long? I mean, it, it isn't like there's a statute of limitations on this kind of thing. I mean, what's going on here? Well, I believe Jesus asked this question to draw the father out a little and to hear the man's pain. Jesus comes to him and he comes to you in compassion. He wants to feel your pain. He's inviting this man to not only experience his power, but to know him as a person. That's where he's taking him. That's where he's taking us. It's not just about the power that's out there. It's about knowing him. In essence, Jesus is going after here. Can this man trust again? Could he humble himself before what God can do? Because faith is key. Faith is key. Jennifer Young shares how one day she asked her two-year-old daughter, Catherine, where her slippers were. And Catherine answered, downstairs in the kitchen. The mom said, well, what are they doing there? Nothing, the two-year-old replied. They can't walk because they don't have any feet in them right now. (laughs) It's a good answer. That's how faith is. You have to put feet to it. So Jesus is bringing this man along in his faith. Let's not be too hard on the dad here. Because where Jesus is taking this man and and where he's taking us is to a place of trust in the right objects. And in a very real sense, the disciples' failure, as you can see here, contributed to this man's crisis of faith. Because they could not, he had this crisis of faith. How often do our actions... How often do our fleshly attempts at being spiritual only turn other people off that we expose to this brand of Christianity? Outside the corn, people will let us down. Other Christians will fail us. The church won't always come through as we might expect. And that's not an excuse, by the way, to behave terribly. But it's an invitation to put our trust in the right place. If you can, Jesus answers, verse 23, everything is possible for him who believes. Of course Jesus can. The question is, will this man believe? Can he trust again? And the disciples are standing by, watching all this unfold before their eyes as Jesus explains to this dad a progression of imperfect faith. Just as an aside, it's not faith and faith, by the way. It's not just believe. You know, often fans will have signs in the stands and say, we believe, like that's good enough for a championship. It's not. It's not faith and faith. You see, it isn't a matter of quantity of faith, as we shall see, but quality of faith. In Matthew's account, it is right here that Jesus speaks of the faith of a mustard seed that can move mountains. 
How big is a mustard seed worth of faith? Quite small. Jesus' point is that it isn't quantity of faith that matters, but quality of faith. The object of your faith is what counts. Sometimes we think, if only I had more faith, if only I had faith like so-and-so, I need great, big faith. Is that what Jesus is after? Is that what moves mountains? Is that what manifestations of God's power are all about, our great, big faith? Listen to the honest words of a desperate man here. He cries out, verse 24, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. It is your imperfect, real faith that can say, I do believe. I do believe that you're a great God. I I do believe that you can do all things. Yes, I do believe, and yet there's still a part of me over here that's kind of lagging behind in unbelief and in doubt. And so am I not to do anything until I reach a perfection of faith? There will be a time in your life, if it hasn't happened already, when the circumstances in your life will lead to despair. Maybe that's where you find yourself right now. Let's be honest. Perhaps you're there right now where no satisfactory explanation is forthcoming. It enters every life. The question is, how are you dealing with it? Will you give up on God who seems silent right now? Will you look to numb the pain with some quick fix, your, your drug of choice, something temporary? Will you look to some, some formula or, or some past experience to get you through? Will you run to the Lord and exclaim, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief? That's where he wants us. Because if we're honest, that is an explanation of our own spiritual journey. It's mine. Don't we experience both belief and unbelief? Aren't there moments when it's as if your faith is barely hanging on? Do you know desperation? Take that to him with as little faith as you have, because the only thing worse is to trust in yourself. That's what we see next, humiliation of the disciples. Verse 28. Jesus heals this, drives out the demon, I should say, of this boy. In verse 28, after Jesus has gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come, not, come out only by prayer. Their failure was not because they did not try. Likely, they did their best. They believed in the process. They believed they could do this because they had done this previously, but they could not. Why not? Jesus says they did not pray. Now, what is conspicuously absent here is that we don't ever see Jesus pray in this account. Why? Because we can even treat prayer as some formula and some magic power that we think that's the power. It's in our prayer. If we just pray, we have power. Watch out for that. Because Jesus' point isn't treat prayer like some lucky charm. 
You know, you know, as long as I go to church once in a while and I, and I pray a little bit, I, I hang around with the right people, I maybe open up my Bible here and there, well, well, then I'm okay. I just get a little fix. I rub it a little bit. We must be careful not to trust in our rituals to invoke God's power, even in our disciplines. Disciples were treating the authority given to them like a gift of magic. And Jesus' point here is that a follower of Christ lives in dependence on God. A follower of Christ lives in dependence on God. That's a mark of a disciple. It is one who is God-reliant rather than self-reliance. You see, we cannot simply depend, seasoned saints. We cannot simply depend on the reservoir of faith. We cannot put our faith in autopilots. We cannot live off of past successes and experiences. I mean, those things may help us, but we must never, ever rely on them rather than God. Ever. I speak to myself. Because the church in America today is doing just that. We are copycats. We duplicate what someone else is doing, and, and then, then we go, that's what's going to get us to where we need to be. No, wrong. It's not what's going to get us to where we need to be. We have trust in the wrong things. Misplaced trust. That's the problem here. This kind can come out only by prayer. When, when do we not pray? When we don't think we need to. When we think we can do it ourselves. See, until we admit we can't, we never can. When we don't pray, it's primarily because we don't sense our need for God. Let's be honest. Let's cut through all the other excuses. And this public humiliation was all part of their training. In this humiliation, the disciples discovered the source of their power. The disciples couldn't drive this demon out because somewhere along the way they forgot the source of their power. They were hitting the balloon back up in the air instead of relying on the power of God to work through them. This is training ground for that day when Jesus wouldn't be around and they would be given the Holy Spirit and his power to carry out his work. And just as Jesus left for them for a time to go up on a mountain with three of his disciples while leaving nine, the other nine to themselves, there would be a day when they would be by themselves without Jesus being right there. And what he would give them and what he's given us is the Holy Spirit. And we must decide daily, hourly, minute by minute if we need to, whether or not we will fill this balloon with our own hot air or have the Holy Spirit fill us. That's the only two choices we have. It isn't a great faith we need for even tiny faith will do, but true faith in what God can do. The disciples fell into the competency, competency trap. I know how to do this thing. I am ashamed to admit the times I have walked into a situation and thought, I got this one. I got it. It's a real problem for churches. I, we got it. We got this one. We've seen this before. And what happens? We stop learning. 
We stop observing. We stop growing. We stop listening. And we simply solve every problem we face with what we've always done. And while young people might be accused of idealism, they also bring a freshness to the table we ought to listen to because they have a lot less experience to pollute their assumptions about what works. What is the practice of those who are in the competency trap? Work harder, try harder, duplicate what others are doing or what has been done. And what is missing in all of that? What is missing the evangelical church today throughout America? Dependency on God, seeking him for direction, throwing ourselves onto him and say we need you desperately. Because without the power of the Holy Spirit, loved ones, we cannot know God. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we cannot understand his word. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we cannot overcome sin. We cannot be transformed. We cannot reach people for Jesus Christ. And just as the disciples tried to do God's work on their own and failed miserably, will we if we attempt to fulfill our mission without his power? The question, the question is, how desperate do you feel for the power of the Holy Spirit today? That's the question. How desperate? Have you been trying to live the Christian life by what you can do without God? Have you been trying to teach, to do his work, to shepherd a church, speaking to myself, without his power? Have we tried all this without prayer and total reliance on him? Then the next time, let's try it with prayer and reliance on him. What does this look like? It's real simple. Admit you can't do it. Acknowledge any unbelief. Ask him to help you overcome your unbelief and watch out for the competency trap. You see, it's when we realize we can't do it that we humbly trust the Lord. It's until we admit we can't that we're ready to be filled with his power. It's when we stop filling the balloon ourselves and keep smacking it back up in the air that God can then come in and do something extraordinary in their lives. But they could not. Are these words written over some churches? But they could not. Many are looking to the church for help. Are they walking away saying, but they could not? fitting words, I believe, for the church today. So well-equipped, so rich, so learned, and yet so often powerless. Why are we so powerless today? Why aren't, we, why aren't people seeing manifestations of God's power in answer to fervent praying? Are people looking to you for help and for answers? They turn away disillusioned and say, but he could not. A mark of disciple is a continual dependency on God's power. It is God-reliance, not self-reliance. See, you can either fill this balloon with your own air and keep smacking it up into the air to stay afloat, or you can be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. I ask you, are you trying to do it yourself? And what has it left you? Where has it left you? Kyle Eidelman speaks of a time when he started a new church in California. I don't know if you can relate to this, but I certainly can relate to this. He says, I found that I was overwhelmed with pressure and stress. 
I was working more than 70 hours a week. My wife would ask me to take a day off, and I would say, I can't. I wasn't sleeping at night. I had to start taking sleeping pills. And when the church was about a year old, I woke up in the night, and I had this strange sense that God was laughing at me. As I lay in bed, I wondered, why is God laughing at me? He goes on to say it would take five years before I finally got an answer to that question, and here's how it happened. He says, when we moved into our current house, I saved the heaviest piece of furniture for last, the desk from my office. As I was pushing and pulling the desk with all of my might, my four-year-old son came over to me, and he asked if he could help. So together, we started sliding it across the floor. He was pushing and grunting as we inched our way along. After a few minutes, my son stopped pushing, and he looked up at, up at me, and he said, Dad, you're in my way. I can push this desk myself. And then he tried to push the desk by himself. Of course, it didn't budge. Then I realized that he thought he was actually doing all the work instead of me, and I couldn't help but laugh. And the moment I started laughing at my son's comment, I recalled the the middle-of-the-night incident, and I realized why God was laughing at me. I thought I was pushing the desk. I know that's ridiculous, he says, but instead of recognizing God's power and strength, I started to think it all depended on me. We really think it depends on on us. I must do this. I must do that. And God just chuckles. Look at Pastor Brian go. He thinks it's his power. He thinks it's up to him. Look at him. Who has the power? Who? Let's pray.